May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do take your seats. Back in 2012, London hosted the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Just raise your hands if you went to any of the events for the Olympic or Paralympic. Hugh, where did you go to? What did you? Handball. Great. Anyone else? JJ, what did you see? Water polo. David and Andrea? Athletics. <laughs> did you go to the same event? Yeah, yeah, okay, great. Well, Catherine and I went to watch the men's football in Coventry, uh, Belarus versus New Zealand. Oddly enough, it wasn't sold out. <laughs> well, a central aspect of any Olympic Games is actually not just the events themselves, although that tends to be what we remember, but the legacy that the Olympics leave for the host city and the, the, the nation. And the theme of London 2012, you might remember, was inspire a generation. And that legacy is intended to last for decades, sporting, social, economic, uh, and a regeneration legacy as well. A legacy that's meant to last for decades. And as we come back to the letter of 2 Timothy this morning, please do turn there, page 1195 in the Church Bibles. We see the Apostle Paul establishing his legacy. And as we do this, it gets us to consider our, our own legacy. Not just what we will actually do, the events, what we'll actually do in our lives themselves, in our earthly lives, but what legacy will we leave? Will we be inspiring a generation? We're going to be asking four questions this morning. The first question is, who gives us strength, from verse 1? Picking up from what he's just finished in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul contrasts those who have deserted him with Timothy. And he says, you then, my son, he's saying, don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes who've deserted the authentic gospel message. No, Timothy, you be distinctive as you hold to the truth. You, Timothy, be faithful, be steadfast, endure. You then, my son, be strong. Be strong. That's a message we hear a lot, isn't it? Whether in, it's in our education, or in motivational quotes, or from inspiring people, be strong. You can almost hear the music pumping, the gritted teeth, the, the image of determination. Be strong. But biblical strength, the kind of strength that Paul is talking about, is a very different kind of strength to that that we are used to hearing about in our society. You then, my son, be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
This is not the strength that comes from natural bounce or a powerful personality or sheer physical energy. This is a supernatural strengthening. Be strong in what? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knows that Timothy faced a situation in which he would feel weak. One commentary says it's the the equivalent of standing your ground in the midst of a landslide. And Timothy wouldn't have strength in and of himself to stand, to endure, to hold the truth. But God himself supplies the resources to enable what he requires in the redeeming grace and the sustaining grace that's in Christ Jesus. And you may may be here this morning feeling very weak. You may be feeling very weak at the moment, and there might be a variety of reasons for that. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, circumstantial. You may be here this morning feeling very weak. Weakness does not disqualify the Christian. In fact, it's a prerequisite. Our weakness is the backcloth for God's strength to be displayed. Just as this stage backcloth provides the backdrop, the backcloth for these beautiful flowers to stand out. So our weakness is the backcloth that displays God's strength. As Paul shared what the Lord said to him in his own experience of weakness. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord may or may not change your circumstances or relieve you of your weakness. But he will strengthen you supernaturally in that weakness. And I think there are a number of implications of this for us. We can be assured that when the time comes for us to face suffering or struggle, when we're called to steadfastly endure, there will be grace for us in that time that gives us strength. And God will give that grace, that strength, when we need it. There isn't a prime delivery option of that grace that you can tick to get it a bit more a bit bit quicker sorry about that the lord will give it when we need it and secondly i read this quote by michael bourne it's when you put your foot forward that the power of god enables you if you wait until you feel strong enough to serve you'll wait forever And I just wondered if there's someone that needs to hear those words this morning. Not a a situation that I know about or 
or anything to do with Cornerstone, but I do just wonder if someone needed to hear just those words this morning, even though I don't know the reason for that. And when we do face those times when we need strengthening, let's not look inside ourselves, but to the grace of Christ. If we look inside ourselves, then we'll be like hungry people sitting next to a banquet. We'll be like thirsty people lying next to a fountain if we're looking just into ourselves. But we need to eat and drink of the grace of Christ and be strengthened, be nourished, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the answer to the first question. And the second question is, who are we entrusting the message to? Speaking of learning English at Cornerstone, I'm now wondering whether my grammar is correct in this one. Should it be to whom are we entrusting the message? I'm not sure. You can tell me afterwards if you're better at grammar than than I am. Tell me before the 11.15. Although I won't be able to change the PowerPoint. Never mind. Let's carry on. Verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So remember that last week we saw that we, we guard the gospel not by burying it, not by hiding it away, but by sharing it, by teaching it, by delighting in it, by rejoicing it, in it, by passing it on. And the Olympic flame is a symbol of continuity between the ancient and the modern games. Several months before the Olympic Games, the Olympic flame is lit at Olympia in Greece. And that ceremony starts the Olympic torch relay, which formally ends with the lighting of the Olympic cauldron during the opening ceremony of wherever the the, the Games is that year. Well, in the summer of 2012, the Olympic flame passed down Castle Boulevard. You might be able to see uh, that picture there as part of the tour around the UK ahead of London 2012. And you can see how the Olympic flame came past this building and uh, the building was still being built at at, at that moment in time, hence the the, the, the fence around it. The Olympic flame, as it's carried, is carried past from one person to the next. Well, the flame of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is is also passed on from one person to the next. In fact, from one generation to the next. When Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, those who had seen and been commissioned by the risen Christ as the 12 apostles, well, they were all either dead or nearing the end of their lives, including Paul. Would the gospel message die out with them? Would the gospel flame be extinguished? No, because Timothy and others like him were to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And they were also to entrust the message to others, to pass it on to others, who in turn would pass it on to others, who in turn would pass it on and so on and so on. Now just think for a moment. If this strategy in verse 2 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy had not been followed, none of us here today would be Christians. We would never have heard of Jesus if this strategy hadn't been followed. Have a look at verse 2. You'll see there are four generations there. Paul, Timothy, reliable people, and those to whom the reliable people, those whom they'll teach. 
So for Timothy, guarding the gospel, holding the truth, means not just holding on to it himself, but it also means planning and preparing for future, future gospel ministry in the churches. Timothy needed to give his time, needed to give his energy for the sake of the coming generations. His horizons had to stretch well beyond his own life and his own leadership. And primarily, he was to entrust the message to teachers of the word, those with the necessary character and gifting in teaching others. And whilst that's the primary focus, of course, there's a a wider application too of entrusting the message, not just to those who might be full-time ministers and leaders in a church, but to all who will be able to teach and share the message with, with other people in some way. Now, that Olympic torch came just outside the window. It came past this building just once. But the flame of the gospel is passed on day by day, week by week, month by month. Our former senior pastor, Peter Lewis, he had the vision for these facilities. And his vision was for a 100 years of gospel ministry. 100 years of building beyond our own lives, of telling the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, even to a generation yet unborn. 100 years of passing on the gospel flame, 100 years of bringing light to new generations. And as as I was a developing leader, well, I still am a developing leader, but at the time as I was a developing leader, I, I was very thankful for the way that, that Peter entrusted the message to me and to, to others, for the commitment that he had to, to training us. And we see the fruit of that at Cornerstone and at Redeemer Church, which was planted in 2017. And as we look to the future now, we very much sense that the Lord is inviting and calling us to multiply and to scale up this training of others for the future. We've got a wonderful opportunity to entrust the message to others. Later this year, we'll begin our third cohort of emerging leaders. We've had a couple of cohorts already. There have been about 10 to 15 people or so in each group. And those are people who are being trained up to lead small groups in the life of the church or in uh, some of the ministries of the church. They're not on the staff team, but they're vital to the the small group life and of ministries being sustained and grown grown into the future. For the last 25 years, we've We've run an internship scheme. People do spend a year on the staff, and loads of people have gone on from that. Some people have gone into full or part-time ministry, but the vast majority of people who have been interns have gone on to to be in the workplace or in the home and serving in in churches on PCCs or as home group leaders or uh, Sunday school teachers and so on. There's probably, I don't know, at least 50 or 60 people that have done that. And I mentioned a couple of weeks back that we want to invest in growing our ministry development scheme. We want to train at least six to eight men and women between now and 2030. Those who join the staff team receive theological training and ministry experience. And some will stay, hopefully, at Cornerstone in the long term as as we're going to have need for 
for leaders in the years ahead here. But we want to do this at a scale where we're training up and then sending out most people to bless other churches in different contexts from our own. And I've mentioned before that if we want to do this well, we'll need to raise around a million pounds over the coming seven or eight years as we entrust this message to others. Well, what, an, what an invitation, what an opportunity to invest in the future of the church. Now remember that question that I've been asking us to think about throughout the whole of the series. What will Cornerstone Church be like in 2053? And now, to that question, you could legitimately say to me, ah, well, John, I'm not going to be around in 2053. I'll be in glory. I'll have moved to the seaside or something like that. You could legitimately say that. In fact, I'm surprised that nobody has. Well, that's a fair point. But we need to think about the legacy that we as the 2023 generation are leaving the 2053 generation? Are we entrusting the authentic gospel message to those who will be able to teach others? Who will be able to teach others? What is the legacy that we as this generation are leaving the 2053 generation? Are we willing to invest our time, our energy, our resources, our finances in, in leaving this legacy? Well, I'm really excited about this invitation that the Lord is giving us. It can be a great blessing not only to the cornerstone of the future, but to many churches in the UK and even around the world. Third question, who are our examples? Like any good preacher, Paul now turns to illustrate his point by means of examples. Have a look with me at verse three onwards. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, if you had to think of an image or a metaphor to describe your spiritual life, what would you choose? If you had to think of an image, a metaphor to, de to describe your spiritual life, what would you choose? Tragically, some Christian leaders seem to be following the image of celebrities or of chief executive officers. What image would you choose to describe your own Christian life? Well, Paul illustrates his call for endurance by means of three metaphors in our verses. Did you see them? A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining each of these roles, although I did realize that this, this week that there are real soldiers, sports people, and farmers in the congregation at Cornerstone. So perhaps afterwards, 
ask them what these roles are really like rather than relying on uh, my explanation. And as the rest of chapter 2 enlarges on the ministry to which Timothy has been called, you'll see in these illustrations that they all work hard, they all see results over an extended period of time that come with perseverance, and they all have an ultimate goal or prize in view. So firstly, soldier. Now as a preacher, I I do spend a significant amount of time always on the lookout for for sermon illustrations. So in any situation I'm in, I'm on the lookout for sermon illustrations. And well, as you can imagine, that makes me a really fun person to spend time with. Well, Paul had various prison experiences, and so he had plenty of opportunity to watch Roman soldiers and to observe the parallels between the life of a soldier and the Christian life. He saw that soldiers are dedicated, soldiers are focused. Soldiers are not expecting a safe or an easy time. And when they're on active service, their service is wholehearted. They're concerned to please and to serve the person under whose authority they operate. I read this quote from G.K. Chesterton this week. It's not on the screen, so you just have to listen. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, because, but because he loves what is behind him. Well, as soldiers of Christ, we look forward to his well done, good and faithful servant. And we love Christ's gospel and his people. That's worth, that's worth guarding. That's what we love. The reference to being entangled in civilian affairs, it's a bit like when your hair gets, if you've got long hair, when your hair gets so knotty that you can't get a comb through it. It's entangled. Soldiers forego civilian pursuits whilst they're on active service. They're focused, they're not distracted. I think the main application here is uh, for those who are full-time, set-apart gospel workers. For example, I don't have another job. I've been set apart to focus on this particular work. And we mustn't misread or misunderstand this verse. It's not saying no to secular activities, but but rather to entanglements that might hinder or distract. It's not meaning disregard family responsibilities or not have hobbies. Paul doesn't legislate specific applications and the outworking of this principle. He's actually confident that the Lord will give Timothy insight as he reflects. And then listen to what John Stott writes. The application of this verse is wider than to pastors, however. Every Christian is in some degree a soldier of Christ, even if he is as timid as Timothy. For whatever our temperament, we cannot avoid the Christian conflict. If we are to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, we must be dedicated to the battle, committing ourselves to a life of discipline and suffering, and avoiding whatever may entangle us and so distract us from it. In World War II, when people were justifying their self-denial or abstention from innocent activity because of the current emergency, they used to say with a wry smile, there's a war on. There's a war on. 
Well, I think many of us in the West have forgotten that there is a war on. There's a spiritual war on. And spiritual battles rage. So what distracts us? A question that I once heard being asked to help us weigh up our decisions or options that might be before us is to ask ourselves, is this decision or is this option going to draw me closer to Jesus or further away from him? Now, that's not foolproof, but it is a useful question for us to ask. Is this decision, is this option that I have going to draw me closer to Jesus or further away from him? Or may the Lord give you insight if you have a decision to make as you reflect on that. That's the soldier. The second illustration is that of a competitor in the Greek games. And the reference here is probably to, the, uh, to, the, to keeping the rules, is probably to the ancient requirement that those who took part in the Olympics had to, uh, had to swear on oath that they'd done 10 months strict training beforehand. Only if they'd done the hard yards in training could they take part in the games, let alone receive the crown. Sports people need a degree of determination and preparation. They can't just decide at the last minute to, to run. And then thirdly, thirdly, the hardworking farmer who toils, who pours out sweat and skill. You know, in the world, in the life of an ancient farmer, there was little glamour or excitement. But they were the first to reap a harvest. And so too, in the Christian sense, those who've planted gospel seeds will reap a harvest. For me, this was exemplified recently at a, uh, a youth baptism service, last, I think it was last term. And there's one person who's served as a volunteer on, the youth, on one of the youth teams for, for decades probably now. And that person said to me at that service, it doesn't get any better than this. To see lives that you've invested in, young people that you've sown seeds in, that you've nurtured, that you've continued to, to encourage in the gospel, to see them grow to the point of declaring their faith publicly in Christ. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. Or to draw these together, these themes, the theme of this point of who are examples, I want you to think, to bring to mind, who are the Christians that you admire the most? Who are the Christians that you admire the most? What character traits stand out? And this week, as I've reflected on who those people are for me, one thing runs like a thread through all of them. Endurance. Stickability. That's been shown in a variety of ways in different lives over many years. For some, it's as they've cared for loved ones. For others, as I bring them to mind, it's that they've lived faithfully for Christ as a single person. For others, it's the endurance they've shown as they've lived with 
impaired health themselves. And the people that I have in mind aren't strong in and of themselves. They wouldn't say that they are strong in and of themselves. They would say that their strength is supernatural. They're strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And they are enduring. And they are examples. And the fourth question, who are we remembering? I'm not going to read all of those verses. You can see them on the screen. Verse 7 shows us the way to biblical understanding. We're to reflect on the scriptures and God will give us insight both human responsibility and divine provision again. And the remaining verses in, uh, in, in today, for today continue that theme of blessing through pain, of fruit through toil, of life through death, of glory through suffering, and of the crown through the cross. And these verses give us the example of Paul, but ultimately the focus is on Christ. And Jonathan Griffiths notes... The false teachers in Ephesus who spoke of living in the full victory of resurrection life in the here and now conveniently forgot about all, all about the real Jesus who suffered and died before he rose and who called his followers to do the same. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Remember, this was no mere theological theory for Paul. It was his lived experience. He was in chains, but God's word was not. So don't despise your chains. We can't begin to imagine how God will use your suffering and to spread his love and hope to others. Let, God's, let God do his work. Keep enduring. And ultimately we'll share in the universal triumphant reign of Christ in the new creation. So glory will come. And we can set our focus on Christ who gives us the power to continue in the struggle, not be removed from it. In verses 11 to 13 it's probably a fragment of an old Christian hymn or saying, full of promises to heed, promises to hold and warnings to heed. Well, Christ Jesus gives us sustaining grace. Christ Jesus calls us to entrust the message to others. Christ Jesus is our example and our salvation. And one day we will reign with him, with eternal glory. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Lord God, for those feeling weak today, We ask that you would strengthen them by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Lord God, please inspire all of us to invest in the future of your church. And Lord, thank you for the examples that we have. 
Thank you for those faces that we bring to mind who are enduring examples for us. We praise you for them. And we praise you most of all for Christ Jesus. And thank you that we will share in his reign in the new creation. And in his name we pray. Amen.